Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Earlier today, we got the consumer credit numbers out for the month of June, and they were very disappointing. At least they were disappointing if you were hoping that American consumers took on a lot more debt in June so they can keep buying products that they really can't afford and shouldn't be buying anyway, and most of them were imported. And what happened was, Rather than $16 billion of additional debt, consumers only went into debt by an extra $10.2 billion. So about a 60% shortfall in the amount of red ink that consumers racked up. Now, prior month, to give you an idea, consumers were going gangbusters in May. They borrowed $24.3 billion, which was a slight downward revision from the $24.6 billion that was originally estimated. But if you look at the spike up and then spike down in consumer credit, that probably explains a good portion of the jump in second quarter GDP. You know, we got that 4.1% number that Donald Trump has been bragging about. But the biggest driver, other than, you know, the soybean exports, to try to beat the tariffs was a big jump in consumer spending. And the reason that consumers had all that extra money to spend was because they borrowed it. And again, I mentioned in prior podcasts, one of the reasons that consumers spent more money was that the price of the stuff that they were buying went up. And when things cost more, well, you spend more to get the same amount of stuff. It doesn't mean that the economy is bigger and that consumers are buying more things. They're just spending more money to buy maybe even fewer things than they bought before. But the fact that we just dropped like a like a rock uh, back down to 10.2 billion uh, could be very scary. And now, yes, this is part of June. So that's going to be part of the GDP for the second quarter, although this could also be one of the reasons that 
the GDP ends up being revised lower because if the consumer didn't borrow as much money as we thought in June, then he probably didn't spend as much money because all the borrowing is to finance spending. I mean, consumers are not borrowing money and then sticking it in a piggy bank. They're borrowing money to spend it. So if they didn't borrow as much money as we thought in the month of June, then they probably didn't spend as much money as we thought in the month of June either, which means that maybe the GDP will be revised down when we get some more accurate data for spending in June. But more importantly, if the trend continues into the third quarter, where we are not going to get the one-off benefit of a big jump in exports, then what does that tell you about third quarter GDP? It could be much, much lower than is currently estimated. In fact, the Atlanta Fed, which always starts off high, is at 4.4. They're going to get a chance to revise that in a couple of days. They started at 5% earlier last week, and then they revised it down on Friday to 4.4. But still, there's still a lot of optimism out there that the big number that we got in Q2 is going to hold up and continue in Q3, whereas I think the probability is much greater uh, that we're going to see a sharp decline in GDP in Q3 because much of that 4.1% that we got in Q2 was in fact borrowed from Q3 in that soybean exports that might have taken place in the third quarter took place in the second quarter instead. And clearly, if consumers borrowed a lot more money than normal in the second quarter, and they're not going to borrow as much in the third quarter because they already borrowed so much, then consumers pulled forward consumption, spending that might have otherwise taken place in the third quarter, and they did it in the second quarter. But that allowed uh, people to get more enthusiastic about the U.S. economy. Again, that's what's continuing to drive the strength in the U.S. dollar. The dollar continues to rise. I mean, not much of a gain today. In fact, it dropped slightly, the dollar index, but still above 95. But more importantly, if you're looking at the emerging market currencies, that's where you're seeing the real pressure. Because again, those emerging market economies, they have a lot of U.S. dollar debt. You know, you talk about, uh, you know, companies in Europe. I mean, generally, they're borrowing in euros. But you go to South America, you know, you find a lot of companies and governments even that are borrowing in U.S. dollars. They're not necessarily only borrowing in their local currencies. And when the U.S. dollar is rising, that is creating a huge problem for anybody who has U.S. dollar debt, including banks and financial institutions that have dollar debt. All of this debt is becoming more and more expensive to repay if your revenues to repay it are being generated in your local currency, but you have all this debt. So this narrative is driving the dollar strength. It's keeping uh, the price of gold down. In fact, yesterday, gold hit a new low for the year, was positive today. We're still trading above um, 1200 on the price of gold, but there's not a lot of distance between where we are now and 1200 I mean, right now we're at 1210 uh, we were up about three bucks on the day. But I do think that there's a lot of support around this level from investors, from foreign central banks, certainly China, Russia. I mean, I think there's big buyers around this level. And I, I've read that a lot of the hedge funds and more speculative investors are once again shorting gold. And I love it when you've got uh, these speculators shorting gold. The last time there was a big short in gold 
was right before the last huge rally. It was at the end of 2015 when the Fed first started hiking rates. That very first 25 basis point rate hike when gold bottomed out the next day at 1,050, you had everybody short gold. And of course, we went way up above 1,300 and a lot of the shorts covered. Well, they're piling back in again because once again, they're convinced based on the false premise that the U.S. economy is booming, that the U.S. is going to win the trade war. I mean, everybody is thinking that gold's got no place to go but down. And once everybody gets loaded up short, then the reality is it's got no place to go but up because all the people who want to sell have already sold. And the next trade that they're going to make is to buy back the gold that they didn't even own, but that they sold it anyway once they get surprised uh, by the reversal. Because as we get more economic data that does not validate this narrative as the economy really starts to roll over. And again, we're not going to win this trade war, not even close. We're going to lose any trade war that we start. People, again, just don't appreciate the position that we're in. You know, one piece of news that came out today, the company Zillow, which is uh, an online realtor site where you can look at all the properties that are for sale and you can you know browse them if you're interested in buying and of course a lot of realtors advertise i mean zillow uh i think there was another company i forget the name of it that merged with zillow it was another big company they were rivals and they got together and in fact zillow's got the symbol z it's got a coveted single digit symbol that used to belong to woolworth uh and woolworth uh doesn't have that symbol anymore because basically they started footlocker and eventually closed Woolworth, and all they all that's left of the company is uh, is Footlocker. So the symbol for Footlocker is FL. So that's what became of a Woolworth and Company. But when they gave up the Z, it was up for grabs. It was kind of orphan. And when Zillow came public, uh, they were fortunate enough to grab it. But uh, Z got clobbered today. It was down about fifteen percent. In fact, that was off the lows. It was down, I think, quite a bit more on the open, maybe even closer to 20%, on the news that they are going to be acquiring a mortgage company to further their new line of business, which they had, I think, announced uh, earlier, which was to actually participate in the real estate market, right? What Zillow is going to do is they're going to allow people who want to sell their homes, instead of simply offering them to sell to the public, they'll be able to hit some kind of bid that Zillow has. Like Zillow is going to act as a market maker for homes and they're going to buy homes that people want to sell and then they're going to turn around and relist the properties for sale on their site. And so they're going to be trading homes, basically flipping homes as if they were making markets in stocks. And I think the reason that they want to buy the mortgage company is so they can package the house and the mortgage in the same product. So if you want to buy a house from Zillow, you can buy the house and they'll arrange the financing. But to me, this is the type of stuff that happens near market tops because I can imagine uh, Zillow getting stuck with a bunch of property they can't unload and also with poor underwriting standards because they, they are in, they're incentivized to kind of move the inventory out that in order to uh, accelerate a sale, a house that they have in inventory, they may be willing to accept a buyer that might not normally be accepted on an arm's length transaction because you got this publicly traded company that's trying to pad their earnings. And so obviously they're going to earn money when they flip homes. And so they may cut corners 
on allowing people to qualify for a mortgage that maybe shouldn't qualify. So in the next housing downturn, not only might they get caught with a bunch of inventory that they overpaid for and can't sell, but they might end up getting back a lot of properties that they already sold because the people who bought it from them are just going to default on the loans and mail in their keys instead of their payments. But, you know, this is the type of things, you know, they say, hey, they don't ring a bell at the top. Uh, this kind of stuff was going on uh, in the mortgage sector and real estate sector in 2006 or seven before the crisis. This, to me, the fact that the business model has to change this much. Now, I know some people are out there, oh, this is going to be great. You know, selling real estate is very, very different than just making markets and stocks. I mean, you buy 100 shares of a stock, it's the same stock. You can sell it anywhere. I mean, real estate is very local, very specialized. To think that I could just let somebody hit a bid and sell me their property. And now, you know, it's, I, they're going to be owning property all over the country. And now they're going to try to uh, somehow market them. I think this is all a pipe dream. But in a mania, in a bull market where crazy things will happen, you know, they can try this. Now, at least the market initially sold off, I guess, based on the fact that they're going to have to spend a bunch of money to acquire this mortgage lender. But we'll see if management can actually get investors to think that this is going to be a big deal or a good deal for the company. I mean, I know the company's stock has been in a pretty good uptrend uh, over the last couple of years. Again, I'm not recommending that anybody buy it, certainly. I'm not telling anybody to short it. I'm just talking about this as more anecdotal evidence of something that, to me, seems like a bad business decision on the part of Zillow, but it's a type of bad business decision that you make in an era of cheap money and a housing bubble where they think, hey, what could go wrong? We're flipping houses, right? How could, how could anything possibly go wrong? We're going to lend money to people to buy our houses. It's just like, you know, the auto companies when they were working with the buyers of the cars and they were financed. Remember all those, you know, GMAC financing, these companies, this is before the 2008 financial crisis. One of the reasons that General Motors and Chrysler went bankrupt is because they had been vendor financing. And then the government basically took over all those mortgage companies, all those subsidiaries, the lenders that were basically fudging the numbers because they wanted to help General Motors, let's say, sell cars so that they can pad the earnings of GM stock. So they were making questionable loans. They were giving out car loans to people who really shouldn't have got them. But they were incentivized to do that by their parent, General Motors, so that General Motors could make the sale. Because if the buyer flunked credit and couldn't get the loan, then he couldn't buy the car. And if he couldn't buy the car, that was going to affect the earnings of General Motors. So this all was a disaster for General Motors uh, and, you know, and, and Chrysler. And I think it's going to be a disaster for Zillow to the extent that they're going to try to help finance the purchase of overpriced houses that they are trying to liquidate out of their inventory. You know, probably, though, the most ridiculous thing that I heard today was on Tesla. You know, Tesla is probably the most shorted stock. I mean, maybe it is the most shorted stock out there. I'm not sure. Uh, but there's a lot of very smart people who are short Tesla. And obviously, you know, Tesla's at a new all-time high, I think, today. I mean, it, it reported unexpectedly good earnings uh, very recently. But today, the stock was up another 10% based on a tweet. Elon Musk sent out a tweet that he was thinking about taking Tesla private. Now, why you would announce that in a tweet makes no sense to me, but he actually mentioned a price. 
of $420 a share. Now, the price was, I think, around uh, $340 or something when the tweet came out, $350. And so now it's up at about $380. So you still got another $40 if you believe that tweet uh, that the financing is already lined up and that Tesla is going to go private. But none of this makes any sense. I mean, first of all, why would you tweet that out? I mean, if you actually had the financing lined up and you were going to take it private, you would just halt the stock and make the announcement. We're taking it private. I mean, just to send out a tweet that you're thinking about doing it and you're thinking about doing it at a particular price and that you've already got the financing lined up. I mean, theoretically, that sounds like he's done a lot more than think. You can't think about something and then have the financing lined up. I mean, to have financing like that lined up requires a lot more than just thinking. Although I think it's impossible. I can't see any way that Tesla or Elon Musk can borrow enough money to take a company that is already loaded up with debt and that is hemorrhaging red ink to take it private. Having the company public seems like the best capital structure that they're going to get based on their plan. I mean, I don't see how bringing it private improves the situation. And I don't even see how it's feasible. But one of the more ridiculous parts of that whole tweet was some people started, I guess, tweeting Musk back and they had some conversations. And some of the people were upset. Some of the individual investors who bought into Tesla a few years ago. Now, obviously, if you bought into Tesla, you know, you're happy. You're making a lot of money. Um, you should be selling. But these guys are upset because they don't want to sell. They, they, they want Tesla stock to keep on going up, right? And they're pissed off because if they're going to get taken out at 420, then they can't enjoy any additional uh, upside. Now, they ought to count their lucky stars if for some reason they did get the opportunity to sell this thing at 420 in some kind of a buyout. I, I seriously doubt that's going to happen, but, but we'll see. But these uh, investors were upset that you know, they would not be able to enjoy any additional upside if the company uh, went private. And then Elon Musk quickly reassured everybody, oh, don't worry, don't worry. If we take this private, we hope that all the existing shareholders stay on board only in the private company, which makes absolutely no sense. I mean, you imagine how many individual stockholders there are that own 100 shares of Tesla. I mean, forget about 100 shares. 100 shares of Tesla is a big position for a lot of people. There are probably people out there that own one share of Tesla, five, 10 shares of Tesla. You probably got thousands, tens of thousands. Who wants to be a private company and have all those little investors? I mean, talk about logistics. It makes no sense to say we want to go private, yet we want all the mom and pops to be private investors in this private company. I mean, one of the benefits of being a, a private company is you don't have all these owners. You know, you have a much smaller owner base. You, obviously, you're not dealing with public filings, but you know, you don't you don't you don't have tens of thousands of owners of your typical private company. So to, to try to say we want to maintain the exact same investor base that we have as a public company going private, then what the hell are you going private for? And of course, if you care about the little guy, right? Elon Musk wants to make sure that we don't lose any of the small investors. What makes you think the small investors are going to want to own a tiny minority stake in a private company where you have zero liquidity? I mean, to the extent that mom and pops want to own some Tesla, they want to own a liquid stock. So if they want to, they can sell some. If they need some money, right, they, they can sell some shares. 
They don't want to own part of a private company. They don't want to have to get a K-1 at the end of the year and then pay their accountants to figure out what their you know theoretical share of any uh, profits or losses or stuff like that. Or None of this makes sense. I mean, it, it, why would you take this company private, expect all the mom and pops to stay on board and be excited about owning an illiquid stock where there's no market and they can't get out? I mean, the, the situation that we have now as a public company is what makes sense given the tweets. And of course, we know that they need to raise more money. I mean, that's obvious. The company needs to raise more money. And they probably can't raise more money with additional debt. I mean, I, I, I think that would be a, a very dangerous thing to do. They need to sell more stock. They need to actually go into the market and raise capital. And that's not going to change if they become a private company. If they become a private company, they still need to raise more money. And if they're going to raise more money, it seems like it's a lot easier to go out and raise money if you're a public company. In fact, one of the reasons that companies go public is because they want to raise capital and they want to do it in the capital markets. And it's easier to do it if you're a publicly traded company than if you're a private company. So if you look at Tesla, it's a very expensive stock that's losing a bunch of money. And if Elon Musk knows he needs to raise new money, yet he wants to keep all the small investors on board, what's the point of even considering going private? To me, the tweet was simply an attempt to influence the price of the stock, maybe to force some of the shorts to cover by dangling out that carrot that we're thinking about going private so that shorts will cover and maybe trying to engineer a short squeeze. But to me, I mean, that's market manipulation. So I don't know. We're going to have to find out here. I'm sure uh, the SEC is going to be looking into the validity of these tweets. I mean, does he really have financing lined up? I mean, how much work has actually been done on a plan to take this company private? Because if there is no plan, if there is no financing uh, lined up, if this is just something he thought about casually that day and sent out a tweet, I mean, is he trying to have a competition with Donald Trump or maybe Donald Trump Jr. as far as who can send out uh, the most tweets with as little forethought as possible, just tweet out whatever, you know, and there are consequences. I mean, you can't manipulate stocks using Twitter. Now, while I'm on the subject of manipulating stocks, I want to talk about an article that came out, I think, yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, and it got a lot of play, and it had to do with pump and dump schemes in the cryptocurrencies, which have been going on for a long time. I mean, I've been talking about pump and dumps uh, since, you know, I first started talking about the cryptos. But this was a very specific article that was in the Wall Street Journal about the pump and dumps. And I think that's just one more piece of bad news that is really going to be weighing heavily on these uh, cryptocurrencies um, in the next uh, several days, several weeks. I mean, as I am recording, you know, we are now breaking down we just actually, when I sat down to record this, we were still around 6,900, and now we're barely holding 6,700. I think there was some key support around 6,800 because 6,800 was kind of like a pivotal level that was resistance when we were down below. Remember, we got down around 5,800, and then we burst through, and we went all the way up to about 8,500 or so before selling off, and now we're back down. And I think we've had lots of bad news uh, that has been coming out on these cryptos. And probably some of the worst news is that what people thought was going to be good news didn't cause any new buying. I mean, if you go back on Friday, 
I didn't even know this when I did my podcast on Friday, but there was some news story that came out about Microsoft and Starbucks at, you know, teaming up to kind of work on some kind of exchange uh, that was going to involve a regulated exchange for cryptocurrencies. And CNBC immediately jumped on the story because they saw Starbucks and cryptocurrency. And, and then they had a Brian Kelly. This is the biggest news of the year for Bitcoin. This is phenomenal. You better buy this now. Of course, it was like 7400 when he said that. So now, you know, as I'm recording, we're 6700 So it's dropped like a stone since he basically said, you better go out and buy this quick. This is the greatest news of the year for Bitcoin. Because not only did it say that this made it more likely for an ETF, which it did not. In fact, I think this afternoon, and one of the reasons for the catalyst for the sharp sell-off today was another ETF uh, decision was delayed where the uh, SEC said, okay, well, we're not going to give a decision now. We're going to do it later. Uh, and I think they're going to, you know, they're going to keep kicking it and punting the ball until they ultimately uh, deny it. But uh, not only did, did Brian Kelly say that this increased the likelihood of a, an ETF, but he said that Starbucks was going to be able, your customers were going to be able to buy their coffee with Bitcoin and the headline that they ran when they in the, in, on their website was consumers to be able to buy frappuccinos and pay with Bitcoin. And then a lot of other news stories basically took uh, that CNBC story and, and, and repeated it. And there was all these headlines about how you're going to be able to use your uh, Bitcoins at Starbucks. But Bitcoin didn't even go up. I mean, you had all this news and it turned out to be fake news. But this story, which should have been very supportive of Bitcoin. Now, obviously, you know, there were some people that knew the story was BS. Maybe people planted it as a pump and dump. And maybe one of the reasons that Bitcoin didn't rally on this supposed great news was because the people who planted the fake news were selling into whatever demand they were able to gin up uh, by having CNBC and everybody else uh, pounding the table on how Bitcoin is about to go ballistic because you're about to be able to use it as money at Starbucks. But there were so many stories that Starbucks came out and said, hey, wait a minute, this is, where, this is not true. We are not going to let anybody uh, buy their coffee with Bitcoin. They said what they're thinking about doing is investing in this new business that will allow people to take their Bitcoin and turn it into dollars. And then once they've done that, well, they can take their dollars and go buy some coffee. Well, they could do that right now. I mean, they could do that without Bitcoin. I mean, and anybody right now who has Bitcoin can sell their Bitcoin, get some dollars, and then take those dollars to Starbucks and buy coffee. So in other words, whatever Starbucks is thinking about doing means nothing. It changes absolutely nothing in the Bitcoin ecosystem. You, you, know, you cannot take your Bitcoins to Starbucks. But despite all the hype, of that announcement. I remember too, Brian Kelly, when he mentioned it, he was like, I don't know why we're not rising here. I mean, we should be zooming uh, on this news. So I don't know, maybe it's still early in Asia. Uh, maybe they're still asleep over there. And when they wake up, they're going to start buying. So, you know, you better buy now, right? Mr. Pump and Dump. But despite all that, uh, the price of Bitcoin didn't go up. And of course, now it's just imploding or selling off because if it's not going to go up, right, then it's going down. Right? If you're not getting new buyers, uh, then there's no new people for the sellers uh, to sell to. And that's why the price is going down. In fact, if you go and look at Google Trends and just under Google Trends, type in Bitcoin. Take a look at that chart. We are like right near the absolute lows 
of the search term Bitcoin, right? It spiked up in uh, December of last year when Bitcoin went up near 20,000. But if you look at where it is now, it's where it was three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. There's no real improvement. Despite all this hype, all the money that has been made by the guys that got in early, it's no more popular as a search term now than it was four or five years ago. I mean, look at it. If you look at the actual chart and if you, the, the Google search trends, so we got up to 100, which is the highest, right? They can rate it where, where they're going from zero to 100. So it peaked out uh, at 100 in December of 2017. And right now we are at eight. And we were also at eight in 2017. But if you go all the way back to November of 2013, we, we traded as high as 12, 14, 10, you know, when we had a little bit of a, of, a, of a spike in interest. But even then, we settled back down to about six, seven, and we spiked back up to 10 in 2014. We, we're at eight now with all this media attention. I mean, nonstop, every day, CNBC. Now, of course, not that many people watch CNBC, but so many more people have heard of Bitcoin now than heard of it five years ago. Uh, yet those numbers are not really significantly higher than they were. In fact, a little experiment that you know I think I ran on my own is if you look at the debate that I did with Eric Voorhees uh, a couple of months ago, so that video on the Reason TV site has over 112,000 views. Now, of course, the debate is on a lot of other websites, including or my own YouTube channel, right? I have it on uh, my Peter Schiff channel. But uh, on the Reason TV channel, and Reason hosted the debate, you have over 112,000 uh, views of that debate. And if you go and look at the comments, and there's almost 1,700 comments. So it's a pretty significant number of comments. But if you read through them, I would say 80 or 90% of the comments are basically pointing out what an idiot I am and how I lost the debate, how I got creamed, how Voorhees was so great and he cleaned my clock and, you know, I just don't get it. I'm an old fogey. I'm dumb. I mean, just go through the list and read them. And, and think about this. I mean, I did not get creamed in that debate. I mean, I held my own. In fact, I think I won the debate uh, by any kind of objective measure. But if you assume that, you know, it was pretty much even, right, it was, it was a draw. But if you also assume that the, the people who are watching this YouTube video, that there's a lot of people who are interested, they're curious about Bitcoin, they're doing their research, right? They're thinking about maybe buying it, but they're not sure. So they're doing some research and they're stumbling across this debate. And so they're like, oh, let me watch the debate. I'm thinking about maybe should I buy Bitcoin or not? Let me hear this debate about Bitcoin, right? And assuming that there are people who are thinking about it and then they watch it, you would think that maybe an equal number of people would be persuaded by me that it was not a good idea and they're not going to buy it as we're persuaded by Voorhees that it was a good idea. Where are those comments? I mean, the fact that almost all the comments are negative, are Peter's, Peter lost and Bitcoin's great, to me, it shows that almost all of the people who are watching this are people who already believe in Bitcoin, who already own Bitcoin. And that's why the, the comments are so overwhelmingly in support of Bitcoin, because that's who's watching it. 
But what that means is that the audience is not growing. You're not getting people coming and watching this and deciding, oh, I want to buy some Bitcoin. These are just a bunch of people who already own Bitcoin, you know, just, you know, reinforcing their own beliefs. Now, the one way that my observation is wrong would be if the people who are pro-Bitcoin are just a lot more uh, prone to write a comment. So there could be a lot of people who think I won the debate who aren't bothering to comment and just that the people who are in Bitcoin are just more motivated. Now, maybe that's it. I mean, I get it because when you're when you own Bitcoin, it's like you're in a cult, right? And when you're in a cult, you're always trying to recruit more people into the cult. And for Bitcoin, there's a real incentive, right, to recruit more people because those new people mean new money coming in means prices going up, which means the people who are hodling, right, the value of what they're hodling goes up because more people are buying. If you don't have more people coming in, well, then the price is going to fall and you're losing money on paper. So I think that they are motivated if you own Bitcoin. One of the reasons you want to comment about what an idiot I am and how, how smart Voorhees is, is because you're hoping that somebody may stumble on this video who's undecided and maybe their opinion will be influenced. If they see all these comments, shift lost, shift lost, Voorhees killed him, right? Then maybe they'll just go buy some Bitcoin. In fact, you know, if you look at the coverage of my Joe Rogan podcast, which, I mean, huge audience. Joe Rogan has, you know, millions and millions of people that are listening. But the only articles that I read on the internet about my Joe Rogan appearance, and there were a bunch of them, all were focused on Bitcoin. Every single one of them was about my my talking about Bitcoin. And in fact, about how I thought it can go to a thousand. And of course, everybody wants to say, that's crazy. That's not going to happen. I mean, Peter Schiff is ridiculous. Why not? Why can't it go to a thousand? I mean, it's 6,700 right now. But if you look at a chart, I mean, if we really break down, if we close below that 5,800 low that we got that last time around, and we're not too far away from it, there's not much support between two to 3,000. So we could easily drop quickly to two to 3,000. And if you can go to two to 3,000, I mean, what's the big deal? Why can't you go to 1,000? Probably on the next decline. Again, my bet would be that we have a big break and we go down somewhere between two to 3,000, we'll probably rally. We may not get back up as high as 5,000. Maybe we will. I don't know. But wherever that rally stops, we're going to roll over again. And I think the next move down is where you go to 1,000. Now, maybe we'll crack it. Maybe not. Maybe it'll have another rally back to two or 3,000 and then plunge below 1,000. But to think that it's impossible that it can go there, I think the odds are very, very high. Now, you know, is it possible that we can go back up to 20,000? Sure, anything's possible. I guess it's possible that Elon Musk is going to take Tesla private, right? Anything is possible. I don't know that I would want to bet on it happening. Uh, but I do think anybody who is getting into Bitcoin now, this is a bit, you've got a lot of risk in this trade. I mean, yes, maybe it can go to 20,000, but there's at least as great a chance, if not a greater chance, that it's going to 1,000 or much lower. So this is a, you, you, there's a lot of risk here in this in, in someone who wants to trade. This is not like all upside. And to the extent it gets to twenty thousand, is there much upside above that, or is this just going to be a massive double top? So if you want to measure, I mean, how much could you make if Bitcoin goes to twenty thousand from here? You triple your money. Well, is it worth risking losing all of your money to triple it? I mean, back you know when it was really really cheap and the sky was the limit. It was really an exponential bet. So what the hell? Like it's a lottery ticket. But right now, people buying Bitcoin 
are taking a huge gamble. And I don't think there's a lot of people now that want to gamble like that. Right? There were people who wanted to get rich quick when they thought they could just put a little bit of money in and then you know make millions. But given the risk-reward right now, there's not a lot of reason for new buyers to come in. And the fact that they didn't come in when all this fake good news was pumped around the market. And of course, I'm watching again on the CNBC. I tune in. And even as we're falling, everybody who comes on, everybody, this is an opportunity. We can buy, low risk reward. I haven't seen a single guest come on and say, get the hell out. This is a bubble. There's nothing but risk. There's nobody like that. In fact, the host will say, yes, you know, here's so-and-so to tell you why you should buy more Bitcoin. And, you know, the, the craziest thing about all this Bitcoin stuff is when I go on CNBC, right, and I talk about gold, what do they do? Oh, Peter Schiff, you're just trying to sell gold. The only reason you're out here talking about gold is because you're trying to get people to buy it. Well, I mean, first of all, I tell people to put 5 to 10% of their money in physical gold. I mean, my main business is asset management, so gold is a small part of my business. But yeah, I think people should buy gold. You, you have to point that out. I mean, every time there's somebody from a major brokerage firm that's talking about going the market going up, they don't interrupt them and say, oh, you're just saying that because you're, you know, you're trying to get people to buy stocks. You're a money manager, you're a stockbroker. Right? They, they never say, they never accuse those guys. But me, the minute I say buy gold, oh, you're just trying to sell gold. Uh, and the other thing, though, is I can't influence the price of gold. I mean, the gold market is so big. No matter what I say, it's not going to make a difference. But they have person after person coming on CNBC who works for some kind of crypto company, who manages a crypto hedge fund, who works for some business in blockchain or crypto. And they say, well, tell us why people should buy. Oh, it's here. And they never once say, excuse me, but aren't you just out here trying to get buyers because you're trying to sell crypto or you've got a crypto business or you have an ulterior motive? You benefit from a higher crypto price. So aren't you biased? Aren't you really just coming out here talking your own book? They never, I've never once heard that allegation leveled by anybody, especially because the show that I was always taking the toll on was Fast Money, right? You always want to say, you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to sell gold. That's where all these crypto pumpers are coming out every day. And that question is never asked, that's never put to them, especially since they can manipulate the market. This market is thin. You have these whales that own big chunks of it, but you get somebody coming on, you know, CNBC and, 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 you know, telling people buy crypto and here's how to do it. And what's going to the moon and you got to buy that is going to influence the market. That is going to influence the price. Either it's going to make the price go up or it may prevent the price from going down while other people are selling. I want to finish up this podcast, though, talking a little politics. Alex Jones was basically banned from, uh, Apple, I, you know, iTunes, from Facebook, from YouTube. I mean, his entire YouTube channel is gone. He had like over a million uh, subscribers on his YouTube channel, maybe over two million. I don't remember. He was obviously one of the bigger uh, YouTubers out there. He's a very popular guy and it's gone. I mean, if you, you know, find any of his videos, if you click on them, then they're not there. I mean, obviously there are videos with Alex Jones that they didn't take down. They didn't ban Alex Jones. They just got rid of all the ones on his channel. And apparently there was another channel that posted all these videos of Alex Jones. They, they got rid of that one too. But on my channel, you know, you can type in Peter Schiff, Alex Jones, and you can see the clips of me 
on the Alex Jones show that I copied and uploaded to my own YouTube channel. So those are still there. Uh, but there, there were versions on Alex's site uh, that are no longer there. And so this raises a lot of very interesting and disturbing questions. I mean, first of all, you have a lot of people talking about censorship, right? Is this censorship? What about the First Amendment? What about freedom uh, of, of speech? And the most important thing to remember when it comes to censorship and freedom of speech is all of that has to do with government. See, government cannot infringe on your freedom of speech, right? It has nothing to do with a, a private business, right? Private property. So let's say, you know, Facebook or YouTube, these are private companies. And I don't have a right to have a YouTube channel, right? You know, and when you sign up for YouTube, you know, you set up account, they have the terms of service and you agree, even though YouTube doesn't charge me to have a YouTube channel, um, I don't have a right to demand one. I mean, it's, it's private property. And of course, I can still do videos. I mean, people can still listen to the Alex Jones Show podcast, even though it's not on iTunes. You just go to his channel, Infowars, and just listen to the podcast, just like people can listen to my podcast on shiftradio.com. They don't need iTunes, right? But it makes it easier for people, and it makes it easier for new people to find out about my podcasts, especially, you know, a lot of you have gone on there. I really appreciate it again. You have uh, reviewed the podcast, given it five stars, keep them coming. Uh, again, I'm being told now that, you know, these uh, reviews are going to help my rankings, which may get more people uh, to, um, to listen. But I don't think this is uh, a First Amendment issue or is censorship. Now, it certainly is a double standard. Uh, that's for sure. Because why are Alex Jones' videos being taken down? Now, supposedly... Because it's hate speech, or he's saying fake news. I don't know. I mean, he says some stuff about uh, maybe the, the the Sandy Hook Newtown shootings were a hoax, or I'm not really sure what his position is on on the Newtown shootings. Uh, how much of what he thinks about it was a hoax? But let's say he thinks the whole thing was staged and that nobody was actually shot. I mean, I don't care if that's what he thinks. I mean, I know that's not true. My son lives. Uh, in Newtown, he goes to school uh, in Newtown. He was a student. Uh, you know, I forget. He wasn't in the same school as the shooting. He was in one of the other elementary schools because there are four in the community. He goes to a different one. I mean, but I, I mean, so I mean, I know that it happened. But if he wants to express an opinion that it didn't, I mean, so what? It's clearly his opinion. I mean, if you don't want to listen to it, don't listen to it. I mean, I don't think he's out there inciting violence. He's not. Uh, out there advocating violence or that people go out and commit crimes. I mean, there are actually sites that advocate for that. You know, there are communist uh, YouTube channels, you know, Communist Party of America. You can find all sorts of YouTube videos that people are putting out that advocate communism, that America become a communist nation. Now, I mean, why is that allowed on YouTube? I mean, if YouTube is going to say Alex Jones can't talk about what he's talking about, well, why can people advocate communism? Because what is communism? That is where the government forcibly steals your property, right? Under communism, the government just takes everything that you have. They nationalize all the property, all the businesses for the state. They steal money. They're looting from the population. So if you are out there advocating that America be a communist nation, you're out there advocating theft of private property. 
I mean, why doesn't that violate the standards of, of YouTube or Facebook? Why don't they go to all these communist sites and just get rid of them? I mean, I mean, clearly what they're advocating is worse than uh, anything Alex Jones is saying. I mean, Alex Jones is saying, okay, maybe uh, the, 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 the shootings in Newtown were fake. But the communists are basically saying, go to Newtown and steal all the businesses, steal all the property from the people that live there. I mean, that, I mean, that's a much bigger threat. Communism is a much bigger threat to the families who live in Newtown than Alex Jones denying that there was a shooting there. You know, I mean, who cares? Right. But the reason that this is happening, it's not because um, YouTube is is making this judgment because Alex Jones has been saying this stuff for years and years and years. And I don't think, you know, YouTube or anybody ever considered getting rid of his channel. Why? His channel makes a lot of money for YouTube. Why would they want to get rid of it? Right? I mean, there's a lot of traffic that is on YouTube because they're listening to Alex Jones uh, post and they're watching his videos. I mean, YouTube's about get selling ads and they, they, they need content. And obviously Alex Jones was providing some very, very good content. Uh, yet they, they shut it down. And I think the reason was pressure from advertisers who were getting pressure from consumers saying, Hey, we're not going to use your products if you don't pull your ads off of this show. And it's all this pressure on profit-seeking companies who then made the decision, you know, it's not worth it. We're getting so much flack from people that it's going to cost us money. Well, then we're willing to sacrifice the views, right? And the revenue that we're getting from having Alex Jones on our platform because we're losing more money potentially by having him here. So we're going to get rid of him because they are in business to make money. And if having Alex Jones on their platform cost them to lose money, well, they have a right to kick him off. That's really what's going on. And but what people should be thinking about is this is the type of society we live in where the left, right, is so intolerant to any opinion that they disagree with, with any opinion that they find offensive, that they will do anything that they can to shut it down, whether it's trying to use the power of government which is wrong, or trying to use their power as consumers to kind of organize, to put pressure on companies to silence people who are saying things that they don't like. But of course, as long as it's not the government doing it, the free speech is still going to get out there. See, Alex Jones can still stalk. He's just not going to be talking uh, via uh, YouTube or via you know iTunes, but his information is going to get out there. And in fact, Alex Jones is big enough and popular enough, this, this is probably even going to help him. The extra publicity that he's going to get from being banned and the fact that he has been banned is probably going to make people more interested in listening. Like, you know, people were more interested in drinking during Prohibition because it was more fun to go to a speakeasy uh, than to go to a bar because, you know, you were doing something you weren't supposed to do, right? And so it made it cool and hip. And so this is probably going to be a positive uh, for Alex Jones. You know, people, some people say, well, Peter, you know, if you're okay with um, YouTube, you know, banishing or banning Alex Jones. What if they do the same thing to you? Well, if they do the same thing to me, fine. But you know what? Why would they? I mean, they're not going to ban me. What's, what, what possible gain would YouTube have in, in banning me? I mean, I've got, you know, 212,000 
uh, subscribers to my YouTube channel. That's not too shabby. I mean, I'm, I th I'm sure I'm in the 1% of YouTubers. I mean, I'm not like, you know, way up there, but I'm, I'm pretty high up. So they make money off me. Why would they want to get rid of me? I mean, nobody is threatening to boycott any products if they don't get rid of Peter Schiff. In fact, I would love it if I was so popular, if my message was reaching as many people as Alex Jones, that I was pissing off enough liberals that they were actually pressuring YouTube or Apple to ban me. I mean, that would be great because I would be much bigger than I am now. I mean, right now they don't give a damn about me, right? Because I am not making a big enough impact that anybody is threatening to boycott anything if they don't kick me off, right? So, you know, if they do end up kicking me off, well, then it's probably because I'm large enough to make a difference. And if I'm large enough to make a difference, I'm going to make a difference with or without uh, Facebook or, or YouTube because they can't censor the entire internet. Individual websites that are privately owned, yeah, they, can, they have their own policy. Uh, but of course, ultimately, if places like Facebook or YouTube, if they started to censor enough people, it would destroy the value of their franchise because part of the, the, the appeal is that, hey, this is a platform for everybody, all sides, all persuasions. Everybody can make whatever point they want and it's an open forum. And if they change that to slanted, well, then it leaves open the door for a competitor to come in and say, hey, don't use these sites, use ours. We really are free you know, we'll let anybody speak or, you know, we have another place for conservatives or libertarians and then they're going to destroy their own franchise. So I think this was a special situation where the left was applying so much pressure. And where you see massive hypocrisy about this is the same people who were up in arms, right? When you get this small mom and pop sole proprietor baker, right? Religious guy doesn't want to decorate a cake for a gay wedding. And now they want to take him to court, haul his ass, drag him through the Supreme Court to try to force this guy to provide service to uh, this gay couple that wants to have a wedding. When there's plenty of other bakers who have no problem baking this cake and decorating it however they want, they want to use the power of the government to infringe on this guy's individual liberty, infringe on his private property, his freedom of association, and force him to do business with uh, to provide service to somebody that he disagrees with. Yet those same people have no problem with a trillion-dollar company. Apple now has a trillion-dollar market cap. And if Apple wants to deny service to Alex Jones because they don't like what Alex Jones is saying, oh, that's fine. We got no problem with that. That is pure hypocrisy. You've got to be consistent. You either defend private property and individual liberty or you don't. Right. So I'm consistent. I don't think we can force a baker to bake a cake for a, a, a gay wedding. And we can't force YouTube to to provide to provide service to Alex Jones if YouTube doesn't want to. If YouTube decides that it's a bad business decision to have Alex Jones on their site, then it's their right not to serve him. And if a baker doesn't want to bake a cake or decorate a cake for a homosexual wedding, that's his right. You got to be consistent. And that's why I'm also consistent. If the same baker doesn't want to bake a cake for a black wedding, he doesn't have to do that either. You know, and, and people would say, oh, Peter, that's terrible. You know, whenever I talk about this idea that we should allow discrimination, that people should be free to discriminate, 
right? They always say, oh, we're going to go back to the 1950s in the South where they're going to have restaurants and it's going to say whites only, right? And, and we're going to go back to that. Does anybody think that that could possibly happen with the type of reaction that we get to this one guy, right, that doesn't want to bake a cake for a gay wedding? You know, could you imagine what would happen if there actually was a restaurant anywhere in the United States that decided if it was legal, right? If there was a restaurant that decided to put out a sign out front that said whites only, how long would that restaurant be in business? What, five minutes, 10 minutes? I mean, how long would it take for somebody to see that sign and put it up on YouTube? And the next thing you knew, there'd be massive protests, massive boycotts. That restaurant would be out of business in a second. Now, you know, could people... Uh, physically stand in front of the restaurant and prevent the white bigots who wanted to enter from entering? No, they couldn't do that. I mean, you could make an argument that, you know, they have a right to go there if they want. But, you know, they could do a lot of things to publicly shame the people who go or to uh, shame the restaurant owner, boycotting the restaurant owner. It wouldn't stay in business. There, I don't think there's a bigot in this country, no matter how much they don't like members of other races, who is going to put a sign like that because people may be bigots, but if they're a business owner, they're not a bigot first. They're maybe they're a bigot second because what they care more about than their own personal bigotry is the profits of their own business. That's their livelihood. That's their bread and butter. So no matter how much they may not like Hispanics or blacks or homosexuals, they're going to keep those thoughts private because they're not going to risk losing their entire business by letting everybody know what assholes they are. So they're going to keep quiet about that, right? And they're just going to uh, allow that. And, th- and this is um, the free market at work. This is public opinion. People have a right. The government doesn't have a right to do anything. The government has force, right? The government is brute force. They have the guns. And they cannot use a gun to force you to do something. But that doesn't mean the public can't do things to sway people's opinions or to make bigotry expensive. Hey, you could be a bigot if you want, but you're just not going to have a lot of customers. That still gives the bigot a choice. He can choose to be a bigot or to make more money. But when government passes a law, that takes away your freedom of choice. You no longer can make your own decision as to what you want to do and live with the consequences because the government says, no, we'll put you in jail. We'll shut you down. And that is what we should be protesting, is government force. It's when government takes away the rights of individuals to express their own opinions and the rights of other individuals to express their disgust with those opinions. But getting back to the whole point about Alex Jones, the fact that the left is so intolerant of people who express opinions that they disagree with, right? You don't see conservatives or libertarians, you know, threatening if we don't shut down these communist sites or these socialist sites or things like that, they are a lot more tolerant of opinions that differ from their own. And I think the reason is because they have rational arguments. We can win. Libertarians, conservatives can win an argument against a a, a liberal. It's easy to win an argument. But the liberals can never win an argument. So they got to shut you up. They got to shut you down. They got to pretend that you're just a bad, you're bad and you've got to be banned. And, you know, they like to pretend that they're so tolerant, but they are the most intolerant people out there because they can't tolerate anybody who has an opinion that's different from their own, which means they don't even believe in free speech. I mean, I hear some of these people say, well, I believe in free speech, but not offensive speech. 
Well, what's the point of having freedom of speech to protect speech that's not offensive? That type of speech doesn't need to be protected. If all you're going to do is say things that doesn't offend anybody, well, shit, no one's going to object to that. The whole purpose of freedom of speech is so you can say things that are offensive, particularly to government. So you can say things that the government doesn't like because it's the government that uh, we have free speech from. It's preventing the government from shutting us up because if the government is tyrannical. We don't want the government to be able to suppress the public from expressing their outrage and to letting people know about the tyranny. So obviously that is the, the, the most important speech, which is political speech that might offend the government. But it also has to do with when the minority is going to say something that may be offensive to the majority, because we don't want to allow the majority to suppress opinions of the minority with which it, it, it finds offensive. Right? And that is the other reason that freedom of speech is so important. But unfortunately, like so many other things, the left has absolutely no understanding of the Bill of Rights or what any of it means. Thank you.